Hello, I'm Taylor Romans. And I'm Matthew Burrett. And this is Hard Beeswax, Experiences in Waldorf Education. Hello and welcome to episode four of Hard Beeswax, where we will listen to an interview with Nicole Gent from September 18th, 2023. Nicole is a lead kindergarten teacher whose most recent teaching experience was at the Santa Fe Waldorf School. We realize that we are just two individuals who are part of this global educational movement, and we want to be very clear that we are speaking on hard beeswax from our own experiences and our own impressions. We do not presume to speak for the Waldorf movement as a whole. So, we are so excited to have you here, Nicole, our first guest of our show. Mm-hmm. We Thank have, you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> you have been a force in my life these past three years with my son, Oliver, um, as Oliver's early childhood teacher. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so we, you know, in, in looking at all of these individuals who eventually become Waldorf teachers, we really like to start out with... What was your experience of education growing up? Well, I was born and raised here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I went through the public school system. Um, I went through many different public schools. I kind of hopped around, and I never loved school, but I was good at it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I was... um, I was very obedient, and so I did well in school. Um, but it was something that I I wish I loved more because yeah. it wasn't until later on when I started to find interests that um, really pulled me in that I started to enjoy learning. What were some of those interests? Mm. Well, um, Children, (laughs) (laughs) children, um, and my mom's a midwife. So I grew up around kids and, um, just the love for early childhood and, um, nutrition has always been a big passion of mine and movement. I'm a dancer. So (laughs) amazing. And so, you know, when you were coming out, coming toward the end of maybe formal schooling through high school, how did you think about what came next? What what were, what were your maybe some of your guiding thoughts as you were moving out into the world? So when I was in high school, as um, went for one of my classes in high school, I was a volunteer at a local preschool here at the School for the Deaf. Oh, cool! And um, that was my first real like early childhood setting that I got to be a part of, besides babysitting, um, and. I completely fell in love with the kids and their openness to the world, to me. They were just so hungry and full of love. And that was the moment where I was like, I have to work with young children because <laughs> it filled me up. It yeah. really, you know, it made me leaving brighter and happier. And yeah. um, so that was where that spark began. And then I um, got into Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. And I was going for early childhood education. And there I met my best friend, um, Liza, who had gone all through Waldorf. And so she was the first one to tell me, to introduce me to Waldorf education. And, um, And I started researching on my own and the more I read about it, the more I was like, this is it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. The magic. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, so then how did you prepare for, for teaching? I mean, it sounds like you were pretty much on that path. Yeah, I was on that path. Um, although I did not stay at Naropa, I ended up coming back to Santa Fe and um, kind of finding my own way through it. But then became a mother (laughs) at a very young age of, um, my daughter was born when I was 24. And so that's also when I, um, I took it upon myself to start studying just as a mother and how to bring this education and the rhythm into my home. 
Yeah, that's something that's so interesting, I think, especially about early childhood when it comes to Waldorf pedagogy is so many people find it through the through the nurturing of their own children, right? And as a calling to especially bring it into the home. Can you speak a little bit about what maybe those first pieces were that you brought into your home and maybe what initially you started applying from Waldorf pedagogy to, I don't know, raising your young kids? Yeah, um, you know, learning a lot about, obviously, rhythm is a, the foundation yeah. <laughs> in raising children and... Um, and just the actually trusting my instincts as a mother and knowing that what I felt was right actually was in alignment with what my new little child needed. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I said, I was young, but I my mom was a midwife. So I had a lot of knowledge around babies, but yeah. it's a whole new thing when it's your own. Um, so... Yeah, with just a very um, warm, loving environment and, you know, natural materials. Yeah. And of course, I was on the bonnet kick. <laughs> all my babies in bonnets. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, the sense of warmth, go, really going into the senses yeah. and those first four lower senses that they're developing. And what are those four senses? The first four senses are um, the sense of touch that's the very first one which as you can imagine that's so important with a new baby um and continues through your life um the life sense and um a lot of us it's hard concept for mm -hmm. us but it's really about um like what fills you up within your body like how mm -hmm. we um connect are physical to the outer world, mm -hmm. and the on, we only aware of it when our life sense is off, right? So if we're sick or, you or, a cramp or something. <laughs> you have a cramp, and you're like, yeah. "Oh, really? I feel that." Yeah. Otherwise, oh, it's kind okay. of in, subconscious. Yeah. Um, and then the sense of movement or proprioception, which all children are seeking, and children today much more than in the past are needing that. And also um, balance or the mm -hmm. vestibular system. And so that's what they're really working on developing in these first seven Is years. Is that why there's so many balance beams and rockers yes. and stuff? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. We're, we're working on that balance. And some children, it's a real struggle. And some children seek it more. If you mm -hmm. see those kids on tire swings and they're going around and around and around, it's because they need it. Yeah. <laughs> and they're really wanting that. Yeah. movement. So you're really free in a, in a kindergarten classroom to, to help a child gain more touch or, or more balance or to be on the tire swing or something like that. Right. And, I, and, um, noticing what they're seeking and guiding them to that mm -hmm. in a safe way. Cause if it's not guided often, it can become, you know, um, a little dangerous with other children without them realizing. So like, like, like <laughs> totally. hitting a child but not realizing their, right. their boundaries and right. stuff. Right, exactly. Uh -huh. Like mm -hmm. proprioception, you know, it's like we're trying to figure out where our body is in space. And uh -huh. so if you have no sense, it's those kids that are bumping into mm -hmm. other kids and um, and they're often very strong, Yeah, yes. <laughs> stronger than they realize. Um, and so you're, oh, okay, you can come up with certain things that are going to seek, are going to help them, um, feel where they are in the world. <laughs> I remember hearing something that applied specifically to Santa Fe when talking about the wind and just the almost, especially in the springtime in Santa Fe, there's just this constant, strong, strong wind. And especially for younger children that it's like this very steady constant affront on their physical body and mm -hmm. how a lot of times this you know you're talking about this sense of proprioception that that can be kind of thrown off kilter in young children especially just because of the wind here and I thought you know how amazing to be in a setting in a Waldorf school where we have some of the knowledge and tools to recognize that because I never would have thought of, Oh, the wind might be throwing this child's behavior off. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it never would have crossed my mind if I hadn't had, you know, some of this added knowledge. 
And, um, and I'm curious, you know, you were applying so many of these tenets maybe of Waldorf education and early childhood education to your own children. And then eventually your path led you into the classroom, right? Could you talk a little bit about how you went from, you know, from mother practicing these things to teaching in a classroom? Sure. Um, Yeah. So I am a mother of three. And so those first few years, I was really focusing just on being at home with my children. Um, I was learning a little bit through once my daughter was old enough to go to preschool. She was at a local Waldorf preschool that my husband had gone to when he was three. Oh, wow. Um, so I got to spend some time there kind of observing observing and soaking up um, all of that wise woman's knowledge <laughs> and experience. Um, and so then when my youngest was about six months, I finally decided to take, she was old enough to go with me (laughs) to training. Um, And so I chose the training at Sophia's Hearth because Mm -hmm. they're specific to early childhood. And their program is longer than most other programs Mm -hmm. because they really go from birth to seven and go into child development quite deeply. So I knew I wanted that program. Um, And so we started traveling together she was six months old, and we'd go to New Hampshire for two to three weeks in the summer. Um, I'm very blessed with so much family who are so supportive. Yes. So my mother-in-law went with us as well yeah. <laughs> to take care of my daughter, and she would come um, on all my breaks and be with me. And um, Yeah, it was a really special time and very eye-opening to be studying child development with my six month old there and often my teachers would ask if she could come in and either just have people observe her movement or how to pick her up properly Mm. or you know so I got to actually learn through um, having my child present which was really powerful that's amazing yeah so we went um it was a four-year four program in the sense of four summers um, with a couple fall and um, spring um, weeks, intensive weeks as well. Um, unfortunately, halfway through was the pandemic. Yep. <laughs> so then, I had that too. <laughs> yeah, most, then it was all online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was sad. I really missed being together in that community because it's so powerful when everyone's in one room. Emmy Pickler was this an amazing doctor who started an orphanage for mm. children, I think, um, who had lost their parents or had, like, major trauma. Emmy, Emmy Pickler is Emmy her name? Emmy Pickler, mm-hmm. yeah. And is she, like, Hungarian? Or, no, she's... Hungarian, Hungarian. pediatrician. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so she had this orphanage for these children in Hungary. And um, it's all about, you know self-initiated movement mm-hmm. and um trusting the child yeah and like not the, rushing right development right so really having them do it by themselves but the most amazing thing which i was always impressed with because sophia's hearth is a child care center and they do pickler based and then in waldorf so they had these special pickler changing tables which yeah. you don't have to get but yeah. the whole thing is like kind of like free movement which yeah. I can't even imagine you're like but there's a whole you should read about it it's okay about I will. talking to them and having them respond and help you basically. yeah John yeah. is so good at that he's like all right we're changing the diaper and he like takes off one side and Orin runs around and he like takes off the other and he's got poop all over his butt and he's just running around and John's just like going with the yeah. flow and I'm like, like uh, I can't do that but yeah. you're so good at it but it's just, like yeah. having them be part of the process and the mm-hmm. conversation okay um and it's funny our uh Teresa Louise's mom mm-hmm. um she started doing that immediately with Robert the pickler changing the diaper thing and she was like it's amazing like wow the little ones even like you watch picture videos from the um from there it's not an orphanage anymore but they do have a place in budapest that they train teachers and stuff 
and the babies will like lift their butt and wow. you know like help you yeah and but it's all about like being respectful to them which i know it's really hard i mean yeah. we used to do like especially on road trips and stuff one of us would just hold yep, yep. the child and they're like, <laughs> like do it. okay yeah. but yeah there's different okay. methods good to know. but it's hard. it's just the age too yeah being like no <laughs> yeah. Yeah. could you describe a little bit of the teacher training community right because you were with other people who were <laughs> early childhood educators what was was there a sharing of ideas was there just this kind of pool of knowledge being gathered all the time. I know I always left my training with all these voice memos on my phone of <laughs> yeah. games or songs or, you know, exercises. And I, if you could speak to that. Yeah. Um, the time was so rich and um, I, I miss it. I never wanted to leave. <laughs> um, and it always seemed to come at a time where I was feeling... Um, just like kind of a lack of etheric and needed to be filled up. Mm -hmm. And so it was perfect to um, be in a room full of people who are like-minded, who are wanting the same knowledge as you and these amazing teachers who are just so wise and um, have so much knowledge. And you're like, how? <laughs> how do you know all of this? Yeah. Um, but in the beginning, I felt like there was this eagerness but almost um, without the patience that you need with mm -hmm. something that takes so much time. I mean, even after those four years, I feel like we were just scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. I wanted more and I want training to be over because yeah. <laughs> there was so much more information I felt like I didn't have. It's almost like training is the task list and then you have to go right. out and actually do it yourself. <laughs> right. And that's and that's why they want you in the classroom the whole mm -hmm. time because you're learning these things and then you get to implement them and really see what worked, what didn't work, mm. you know, or how you might do it differently. We would bring certain children into that circle of like, I'm really struggling with this. What would you do mm -hmm. in this situation? Um, but yeah, I have... My, still, my phone's full of videos of finger games yeah. and <laughs> circle songs and, you know, so many wonderful things. So how do you see Waldorf Education meeting the children of today? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think children of today need Waldorf Education possibly more than ever. Mm. <laughs> um it allows children to connect with the world around them and with other humans, which in our society, we're losing that mm -hmm. um, capacity to have human connection and relationships and conversations. Yeah. Um, and so I think that what Waldorf does better than anything else is really honor um, and allow space for childhood. Mm -hmm. And I, kids today are asked to be mini adults, and mm. they're not. And so that's even in terms of scheduling and the times for allowed for eating and for right. lunch and for free play and stuff like that. Right. And I, any question that came up in training, I swear it was always like, you need more space. Hmm. You need more time. You need to slow down. Yeah. And that's what these kids need. They need to slow down. Because oh. from the second they wake up, it's go, 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 go. So true. Even hmm. rushing them into bed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's go. Down we go. Down, you know, rush to bed. Wake up. You know, and um, when do they get to just be hmm. and be outside and dig in the dirt with a stick or, you know, um, I think that that's really a huge benefit mm. of Waldorf education and allowing that and, and building it into their school day yeah, is such a blessing. So can you walk us through a little bit of maybe an archetypal rhythm, you know, sure. not specific necessarily, but yeah. just generally, what is the rhythm of the day in the early childhood? Yeah, so every classroom, you know, has their own unique rhythm, but um, 
they're all very similar. Um, so a regular rhythm in my classroom would be we come in to the building, we take off our shoes, put on our inside shoes, you know, take off our layers, um, use the bathroom, and we do a lot of finger games while we're waiting for everyone um, till they're ready. And then, as you know, transitions, we sing every transition, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is so helpful because transitions are the hardest for children. I think, I think for all humans, really, none of us um, do very well with transition mm -hmm. and change. But um, just by the song I would sing, they know exactly what to expect. We would always come into our table for a morning activity, whether it was drawing or watercolor painting baking, chopping vegetables, mm -hmm. or handwork. Um, that's where we would just kind of center ourselves and as a group, the first thing in the morning. And then they would go to free play and have that out-breath. Um, lots of fun, <laughs> creative fantasy play. Um, they had a good amount of time. I always tried for close to an hour not always there more, you know, mm -hmm. and that's the beauty of rhythm is it's not rigid mm. yeah. and it's there. It holds them. They are secure in knowing what comes next. But if you fall out of rhythm, you're able to step right back in. Mm. Whereas routine, it's very rigid and mm. doesn't allow that space. Right. So, um, yeah, we would have indoor free play and then we would I would take them a few at a time to the bathroom so it wasn't a whole transition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then we would do our tidy up song. Everyone would tidy the classroom. We'd have our morning seasonal circle, which is always a favorite. Yeah. It's movement and song. Um, wash our hands. And then we'd come into our family style um, snack, which was our favorite as well. Yeah. Lighting the candle, saying our blessing and serving warm food around the table. Um, the children were always so patient waiting until everyone had their bowl <laughs> to get their spoon and eat, all eat together. Yeah. Um, I could probably stay at our snack table all day. Yeah. <laughs> it's a warm feels place. Like a, yeah, just a sweet time together. Um, and then we get rid, well, the children always wash their dishes after snack um, and then get dress to go outside and that is our longest um activity of the day is outside playtime yeah um and through all weather yeah <laughs> and unless it's dangerous but um yep throughout the year they really need that time I always remember seeing the kindergartners just bundled to the nines, <laughs> yeah. just trooping across campus, going on some adventure. It was amazing. They yeah. were much more resilient than the high school students. Yes, yeah. they were. <laughs> they were dressed well. <laughs> yeah, they were. They were. <laughs> and they really value that outside time. Mm -hmm. um, and again, their fantasy play is so incredible, especially in nature, you know, and what they can build and climb trees. I just found out that not other schools allow children to climb trees. And that's something we did. Yeah. <laughs> and they're so capable and um, in their bodies. Mm -hmm. And it really teaches them a lot. So I, I think it's really important that when you talk about fantasy play, that's really strengthening the imagination versus the like the academic um, knowledge that will come later. But could you speak a little bit about what fantasy play um, and strengthening the imagination does for a student? You know, what are you? What's the foundation? What? Why is that happening in the early childhood? Right. Um, well, yeah. We also call it open-ended play, right? Mm. Like it's not structured. Um, anything goes as long as it's safe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this just really. This is where children learn. This is their first opportunity to learn about themselves and the world around them and each and other humans, right? Um, they are so deep in it, and you can see it, that it is very important work mm. to them. Mm -hmm. Whereas it can be so easy as an adult to try to pull them out of that or try to snap them out if you're in a rush or something, mm. but they're really 
in important work and they're working through situations in their play, um, you know, and of course, when there's other children present, it brings out conflict resolution. And um, mm. we really encourage that with children. As adults, we would try our best not to step in unless we absolutely had to. Mm -hmm. Often just standing close was enough that there is a that ego presence, mm -hmm. um, but that they work each work things out with one another. You know, this is a lifelong skill yeah. <laughs> and it's not easy. A lot of people don't like conflict. Yeah. Um, and so we're socializing, we're um, learning with each other. And also this, along with our oral storytelling, we're building that inner picture, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Which a lot of children these days, especially don't have that capacity mm. because they're given the image that it's coming to them and penetrating their bodies right rather than coming from within them mm -hmm. yeah and so that is really where um fantasy play comes in is any anything that they want can happen mm. it's it's possible and it's not in a box so we talk a lot about not um, having children on screens, yeah, which is hard for parents, especially this day and age. And believe me, I'm a parent. I know how difficult that is. However, when children are constantly given these images, they literally, they get stuck in a box. They can't think outside of that mm -hmm. scenario. And so that's what we watch for, or that's what I would watch for children who would take in a lot of media. Mm -hmm. um, the only way they're able to process it is through play, yeah. right? Which is also really important. Mm -hmm. You want them to process it. But are they able to take that image and expand on top of it or mm -hmm. move through it? Or is it just this and they don't know how to bring anything else in mm -hmm. or get like bring it to a solution mm. that's that's so amazing and i you know matthew joined waldorf school in first grade mm -hmm. and then i joined i had two years of kindergarten and we were we were talking about how my the the tv in my home broke around the time <laughs> when i joined the waldorf kindergarten and i was very when i think back on it i i almost remember archetypes rather than specifics of like I remember the this general picture of dog but I don't remember a dog right whereas I think that for some people if you have you know if you've watched something and and been told from the outside in this is dog <laughs> then that becomes all that dog is and um and I and I think it's just it's so hard because it's so present right and um and I'm also just curious about the, you know, you're talking about this incredible rhythm and what do you say to parents or people who are concerned about the lack of academic preparation or, or um, direct academic preparation of you're not exposing them to the alphabet, you're not, you know, counting numbers, you know, explicitly, what would you say to maybe some of those questions about what the work is that you're doing in early childhood? That question came up a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and really our work with the children in early childhood, especially through movement during our circle games or outside movement, we're laying the foundation of what they need in order to have traditional academics, right? Um, crossing the midline. People don't think about that, that you have to be able to cross the midline with your body in order to write or read mm. or um, many things. And a lot of children are not yet able to even meet at midline. Can you explain what crossing the midline is? Because sure. I think we in the circle automatically say, oh, yes, crossing the midline. But what, I mean, could you describe what that, right. what that so, is? Right. So let's see how to describe that. There's a midline kind of, the, if you think about it, like a line going down the center of your body um, and it has to do with 
um, the different sides of our brain, right? And so when babies are born, like they don't even know they have limbs yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's the most amazing thing when yeah. your child finds their hand like, or their Whoa. foot and it's like the best uh, toy ever. <laughs> They're like, wow, what is this thing, right? Um, and so you watch a child develop and slowly they can grab something and pass it to their other hand. Mm-hmm. And that they doesn't come until both hands can basically meet in the center of your body that's meeting at midline. Yeah. But there's also, there's a vertical midline and there's a horizontal midline, right? And so if you watch a toddler um, pick something up off the ground, they'll squat. Yeah. Because they won't bend, they cannot bend over yet to cross that midline. Wow. So these are all things we're looking for. Um, in the early childhood, these developmental milestones. Um, And so some children are six years old, ready for first grade, and they still can't cross that midline. And there's different factors that play into that, and some are just not ready, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And there's other things we might look at and whether or not a child needs occupational therapy to Mm -hmm. help that process. Um, But the movement that we bring into our circles, it's all about crossing the midlines and um, gross motor and fine motor and, um, you know, expansion and contraction and the planes of space, right? There's all Mm -hmm. these planes of space and we have to learn how to move in all of them. (laughs) So So, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) and it's fun. I'm a dancer, so I love the movement aspect of it. And so that's what I would say to parents is that it doesn't look like we're doing academics, but we are doing a lot of work to help them to get ready. Mm. Um, One thing I've seen in the past couple years is that a lot of children don't know how to cut with scissors. There's a lot of very basic skills that are missing Mm -hmm. um, because children aren't being exposed to these things, right? Everything's a touch screen (laughs) and they don't know how to use their fine motor skills. And I think there's also a lot of fear around safety, right? right? When it comes to Mm -hmm. helping in the kitchen or, you know, using some of these tools, there's, there's a real fear. Right. Yeah. And I would really uh, like to dive into a little bit about the nutritional side of getting ready because there's a whole piece around being able to have the energy to do these things sometimes too. Right. Um, yeah, nutrition is a huge part of child development um, that not a lot of people are aware of or maybe just don't take the time to learn about nutrition. They're not taught about nutrition. Um, there's many, <laughs> many ways to think about nutrition and what's best for a young child. Um, but fat is one of the key components, um, specifically animal fat, is necessary for the brain of Mm -hmm. a young child. Um, And one thing I do struggle with as far as nutrition in Waldorf schools is the amount of grains they Mm -hmm. use. Um, I do think that 100 years ago, grains were a whole nother thing than today. Um, And so... Once again, it's just about the not having the knowledge of how to prepare grains correctly. Yeah, Are yeah. you soaking them? Are mm-hmm. you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I really made a point to have, we still had grains in yeah, our kindergarten, yeah, yeah. <laughs> even though I personally don't really eat many grains. Um, but we prepared them in a way that the child, the children can break them down. Mm-hmm. They're going to be able to digest them. And it's along with, good fats and good protein and lots of vegetables and um and the children love it and they're hungry for it you can tell their their bodies need this nourishing food (laughs) yeah oliver would eat things that i'm not sure he would eat at home right right and that's and also it's amazing to watch children who have never tried anything like that at home um 
often we're very hesitant at first, but because it's collective and Mm -hmm. everyone is sharing in the meal together, they start to become curious and they'll have little, little bites. And they're like, oh, I kind of like that. Or, Uh you know, um, and to see, I've had many children from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. It's like, wow, they're now they're eating every snack, multiple bowls. (laughs) Um, So for just for clarity, there's a homemade prepared snack that's typically cooked right there in the classroom. Yes, every that day. every day, and it's it's almost always warm, and um, and so what are the are there set grains that go throughout the week or a general pattern or a rhythm? In there that are way? grains of the day that goes with the week and the planets. Um, we did not always follow those, um, but we did our best. We had rice day with carrots and you know good raw delicious cheese and Mm. um pumpkin seeds and we would call sprinkles um children call (laughs) sprinkles hemp seeds (laughs) we love our sprinkles um and then we'd have vegetable soup day again the children are chopping the vegetables Mm -hmm. but it's in a really um Good nourishing bone broth, um, and they'd that have was Tuesday. Tuesday, <laughs> yeah, Tuesday soup day, um, and we also would bake our bread on Mondays and have the with mm. our soup on Tuesdays. Oh my, yeah. my mouth is watering right. thinking about kindergarten bread. <laughs> I know, oh, it was it's so special. good. Well, even now our days are still. Is Friday is Apple Day? Oh, good Apple I mean, Day! Yeah, those those the rhythms are still there <laughs> oh, for Oliver. So happy. Yeah, yeah, steamed apples with butter and cinnamon. Mm. Uh, one of our favorites. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yum! That was our Friday treat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. so Monday rice, Tuesday soup, soup. Uh, Wednesdays we would have quinoa mm-hmm. um, and applesauce with some veggies on the side, and then Thursday. Was oatmeal. Was oatmeal. <laughs> wow. I when I was it was rice with nutritional yeast and then millet. I don't remember exactly what day, but I know it was rice, millet, oatmeal, cornbread muffins, and bread. Mm. And um Nice. That yeah. was and and the introduction of nutritional yeast. It was like once <laughs> I had these grains with nutritional yeast, I remember going home and I was like, "Mom, we need this. yeast." And she's like, "What do you, what are they feeding you? What do you mean you, we need yeast?" You know, like and and next thing we knew, we just had the big thing of brewer's yeast. And still to this day, I make my popcorn with butter and yeast. <laughs> yep, <laughs> the greatest yeah. thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the you know the snack was always a center point, and that's often how children knew what day of the week it was. Yeah. <laughs> it's rice day, it's soup day, and it gives them a sense of our week together. And when they knew the next two days were going to be home days. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 really special. Um, but yes, the nutrition aspect, you know plays a huge role into their development and getting ready for first grade and academics and um yeah yeah. just going back to something you said before about how in a waldorf early childhood there is the time to um and that the time is kind of dynamic and if there's a an something that happens and there needs to be conflict resolution, that there's time to do that. That was actually one of Oliver's first complaints when he started in public school. He had a, or he had a issue with one of his classmates and then like the bell rang and they had mm-hmm. no time to resolve it. And he came home upset because he said, I didn't have any time to work this out. You know, my heart was hurt and there was no time to work it out. And I, I realized, oh, that that is part of the beauty to have this more dynamic you know, ability to, to meet these challenges and to meet these students. Because as we all know, sitting around this table, we think some of these, well, we know that the, some of these interactions are maybe karmic in, or, you know, very, very long standing issues that maybe needed to come to a head right then. And so the education is kind of designed to, to help with that rather than, as you said, a very strict, you know, measurement of time. Right. Could you talk a little bit about the, right, the early childhood, zero to seven, Steiner talks about these cycles, which we see paralleled in other, you know, kind of philosophies around the world as far as human development goes. But 
in the education of the early childhood student, the teacher is teaching them out of their etheric, right? Could you speak a little bit to that gesture? Because my impression of having, you know, received Waldorf, a a version of a Waldorf education, and then being taught how to deliver it was so much of it, of what the teacher is doing is internal, right? It's all of these internal forces and impulses and, and thought and imaginings that then allow them to show up for the children in the way that they need to be. It's less about, here's what you're teaching on this day in this, you know, in this order and more of these internal impulses that end up having such a profound effect on the student. So could you talk about kind of that, the etheric molding the physical? Yes. (laughs) Um, So this is so funny because when it brings me back to the beginning of training where (laughs) everyone was kind of like, just tell me what to do to get them from here to there. (laughs) Right? Like, what do I have to do? Yeah, like, what's my lesson plan? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, And one of my most amazing teachers, Jane Swain, she would always talk about, you know, she'd call that A to B. Mm -hmm. You're trying to A to B them. And that's not how children work. That's not how we're teaching, right? So we're teaching out of modeling. And that's huge because then you have to be worthy of imitation. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. have to be aware of yourself and exactly what's going on internally, but also physically. Um, the, not many people have self-awareness in that way. So it really kind of brings you in and learning more about your um, how you move through the world. And so through that in training, we did a lot of spatial dynamics Mm, um, by Jamin McMillan and Jane would teach us so many different Mm. um, movements for different things that would come up. Um, But this really, once again, going back to movement as a dancer, I really connected with spatial dynamics and it kind of just gives you a visual understanding of the energetics in your body and around mm-hmm. your body. Um, that was my sense of like yeah. understanding a little bit more. Yeah. And my understanding is that you are modeling, as you say, you are representing, but what's happening between this teacher and the student is that the students are actually taking some of your etheric energy to help form their organs, right? Exactly. Yep. So children... Um, they do not have their own etheric yet um, until around the age of seven, they birth their own etheric. So until then, they are taking their adult or their caregiver's etheric. Um, Everything makes sense now. This <laughs> yeah. is why I'm so tired all the time. Exactly. It <laughs> yeah. really takes your full energy yeah. out of you. And if you don't replenish that, then you just end up depleted um, because they need that in order to um, form their organs and, um, yeah, have a sense of themselves. <laughs> and I, I'm also understanding that, you know, the the early childhood student wants the same thing every day. They want the story told in the same way, and they'll tell you if... You, know, you do it incorrectly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, they will. Miss Nicole, the the duck had a black feather on its back. Exactly. Not great. Right, which is why I could never be an early childhood teacher because I never say the same thing the same way twice. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Well, that no, like I said previously, the knowing what to expect, mm. right? Um, that gives them a sense of security, ah. and um, they don't have to guess. Yeah. Right or or wonder what what's gonna happen next, um, and the storytelling really. You know, we'd work with a story for one, two, possibly three weeks, depending on the story, and if we could kind of go from oral storytelling to a puppet show to then acting it out, which yeah. is so fun for the kids. Um, but it really, that imagery, the archetypes really imprint mm-hmm. upon them mm-hmm. and they can um, take time to process all those different little pieces of the story. Um, so yeah, but back to the etheric, 
Um, so we, so Jane Swain would have us learn these spatial dynamics exercises, and there were certain ones that she would often say, you know, do this in the morning before mm. school. Um, I did my best to do that. You know, some days are better than others <laughs> as far as time and stuff. Um, but it just sets your your energy or up right for um, having kind of more of a lasting effect, I would say, on the children. They're kind of more drawn to you. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what Jane would talk about, too, is not trying to get them from A to B, but having something that we call a peripheral draw. What mm. is going to draw them without verbally telling them to mm. go somewhere or come your way, yeah. right? Um, and so it it's so open-ended that there's so many possibilities and the teacher gets to create mm. what works for them that is for their students. That's so funny with my son is right around 19 months right now and asking him to come to to do something else is is a absolute waste of breath but curiosity right if mm -hmm. you become curious in something and and you know lean in and look at something small it's amazing how kind of that peripheral draw like he mm -hmm. gets drawn in that curiosity leads him toward whatever that is whereas asking him to you know Yes. To, to join me is, is again, just a colossal yeah, waste. Speaking to the head is not going to work. No. And, that's, and that's why we speak through our limbs. And that, I guess, that really ties into the modeling is that children are in birth to seven. Um, they're experiencing and living in the world through their limbs, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's how we want to connect with them is through our limbs, not through the head. So if we speak at them, we can do that all day long and it's not really going to do much. But if we move with them and we show them with our body what we're doing, they're going to naturally want to follow. Wow. And that's the magic. <laughs> so, and then how much is what's happening in the classroom part of like a birth story or birth history for this, for the child? Well, um, the birth story specifically, we only... Um, tell for their birthdays. Uh -huh. Is that what you're talking about? Um, uh, and maybe I, I think I was talking a little bit or thinking about like how they were actually born. Right. And so, yeah, yeah I mean, that is a really important part of um, getting to know mm. for parents, getting to know the teacher, the teacher getting to know the child and the families, having the birth story and having that awareness of how the child came into the world. It tells you a lot. It gives you a lot of information um, because we all, <laughs> no matter how quote unquote perfect a birth is, it's all trauma, right? It's, it's a type of trauma that lives with us for our whole lives. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's certain things that if we're aware of birth trauma um, that, you know, we might see this in different areas. So you can actually see that in the physical movements of the ch mm -hmm. children? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, or just even situations, something that they come up against. Uh -huh. um, for my own daughter, I'll tell you, um, which was really interesting. Um, when she was in kindergarten, she often would come home frustrated saying that her teacher pushes her and she really didn't like being pushed. And I was like, I really, no, I know your teacher. I've been in the classroom. I used to be an assistant when she, mm -hmm. um, sometimes when she was in kindergarten, I'm like, she's not pushing, but so what does she mean? But often the, the teacher would very gently place her hand on my daughter's back, right? Kind of as mm -hmm. a gesture of like coming along. And my mom, who's a midwife, she had the moment of being like, that has to be from her birth because my daughter was breech mm. and we tried everything to get her turn and she wouldn't. But one of the most difficult things we did was have an external version and it's very intense and very painful. I would never do it again where yeah. they're pushing with all their strength from the outside, trying to physically yeah. turn the baby. 
And so that was just a light bulb mm. aha moment of like, she's feeling pressured. She's feeling pushed. And that comes back to birth, not wanting wow. to be forced wow. into a situation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So there's these little moments where you might not think about it immediately, but it, it usually kind of comes Like a reverberation back. almost. Right. Mm. Exactly. If you're comfortable, would you be willing to share maybe some of the ways then you try and help a child navigate or or work through that then at the kindergarten stage, right? Because you can't go back in time, but but right. what can you do then for a child who is experiencing those reverberations in kindergarten? I think that you really have to take time to, you know, whether it's giving that specific child a little bit more time and incoming or transitioning. Um, there was also another child whose birth I knew um, had a lot of knowledge about who struggled so much with transition and being rushed. Mm -hmm. And that also came back to their birth. And so sometimes they, yeah, they just need a little bit more time, whether it's with your assistant and you're taking the rest of the class and and allowing this child to come in on their own time. Um, and, you know, there's so many different situations or scenarios, but um, yeah, just really looking deeply into what might just make that little shift mm. for that child and allowing them space wow. and time. <laughs> and it sounds like putting a lot of trust in the child themselves, right? Of, Absolutely. Of, you know, trusting that they are, you know, living it out in their time right. and on their own time. And they have to work through it, you know. And of course, there's other ways um, like osteopaths and stuff that can help that mm. process as well if it comes to a point or if it's, you know, extreme enough and mm -hmm. talking to parents in that way. But wow. yeah, and also stories. Stories are so powerful, pedagogical stories. And so if a child's really struggling with something, that's when we would go into, okay, how can we tell a story that's healing for this child? And are there like stories that you have in your back pocket for different situations? <laughs> there's certain stories, oh, wow. yeah. And then sometimes there's not, and you have to kind of come up with one mm. to meet a child or sometimes multiple children who mm -hmm. are having conflicts or, mm -hmm. you know. It's... Yeah, the conflict stories. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, one of the most powerful phrases that Oliver would come home or something would happen even in our house, he, he would be able to say, oh, that hurts my heart. Mm. That's really coming from the wee spirit yeah. nursery. Yeah. And that was really powerful to to have his voice, to for him to be able to speak up about something that had just happened that hurt him. And, and yeah. And being able to voice that and, because yes. so many of us hold that in until mm -hmm. inevitably it explodes and it's not productive. <laughs> right. Right. And so if they're able to verbalize that or show you in a way um, that they are ready to work through it. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's happened between him and I, and you know, he's a, that hurt my heart. And I, and I, sometimes he doesn't even want to say it. Mm -hmm. And I said, did that hurt your heart? And he said, yes. And I said, okay, well, how can we, you know, let's, let's resolve this. Is it resolved? Yes. And then we can move on. And mm. I've found that to be really a strong tool mm. to. Yeah. Yeah. And that he'll carry on forever. Yeah. 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 I mean, even already my son tells stories about the things that he maybe frightened him or the things that scared him or, you know, places where he took a particular big fall or mm -hmm. things like that. He, he is already voicing them. And it's amazing just to watch. And again, I think that is, for me, something that Waldorf just really rings true when you observe. Mm -hmm. When you observe children, when you observe either your own children or, or children of friends or family, that so many of these things that Steiner was talking about just ring true when you actually look at kids. And um, what, what was the first aha moment you had with Steiner or with Waldorf pedagogy? Like what was maybe the first thing mm -hmm. that you heard where you felt, oh, wow, that, that makes a lot of sense. Think about that. I'm like, there's so many things. <laughs> or maybe one of the, um, one of the most memorable. Yeah. Let's see. Um, 
I think that one of the things that really, that I was some semi-aware of as a child, but not knowing it had anything to do with Steiner Waldorf education were the temperaments. Mm. <laughs> and um, my mom used to talk about the temperaments and I, I would just hear these words all the time and she'd be like, oh, you're they're so choleric or they're so, you know, yeah, 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 I'm yeah. like, what does that mean? Um, and then I think it was during foundations uh, um, that I took at the Santa Fe Waldorf School. And we started learning more about the temperaments and just really, I had my own kids at that time and not, it's, it's harder with children, right? Because they're kind of mostly sanguine <laughs> yep, yep. Um, and they develop temperaments a little bit later but like even looking at my husband or people around me and being like oh this makes like so much sense of just who they are in the world and how they approach things mm -hmm. yeah. and not that it's a box but that they're very real yeah. <laughs> in all of us you know yeah. and it's it's a lot harder um for you to identify yourself yes. than yes. others. Yep. Right. Yep. <laughs> what's the what's the fence thing? Have you heard this? Where it's like if the four temperaments walk oh. up to a fence. Yeah, the the choleric w walks right through right it. Right through it. Yeah, 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 like tries to break it the down. The sanguine kind of jumps over it. The 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 phlegmatic kind of just sits there and doesn't doesn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. and, the, and the clerics. I mean, the, and the, the melancholic kind of I don't know starts crying. Or Probably. Something. <laughs> Yeah, that made a lot of sense to me once I had a deeper understanding. Um, but really all of it, the threefold human, the fourfold, like every piece of it I, that I was learning more in depth was like, wow, it just made me understand humans mm -hmm. in a different, in a deeper way, but in a different light, mm -hmm. but, you know. Um, I have a kind of silly question maybe, sure. but... I've often seen these very heavy kind of beanbag-like bean um, pillows or something that you that are put on students' laps or something. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what, that, sure. what that's about? Sure. Weighted, yeah, anything weighted. So they have weighted blankets or, yeah, beanbags. Um, that goes back to proprioception mm -hmm. and, um, you know, trying to understand where your body is in space. And so um, the way we receive that input is in our joints, anything in our joints, oh. the pressure. Um, and so if a child is kind of feeling out of themselves and not quite able to pull themselves in, often something weighted will help mm. them feel their bodies. Mm. And so, um, those are often used during story time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, they're like legally. falling out of their chair, or, you know, which is super natural for kids. I don't expect children to sit up straight and listen to a story, yeah. you know. Um, they naturally move about. They're meant to. But some kids really benefit mm. from just that sense of weight or pressure. Yeah. Um, to kind of ground them and know where they are. Um my children call, we also do um, what they call toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's, you are working with the joints, right? Mm -hmm. So you kind of pull out and push. It's joint compression. Oh, and okay. you're, feel, you're p pulling out and pushing every joint. I, do, I go down to their thumb, their fingers, their fingertips. We press at the ends of their fingertips and toes. And again, that just gives them that input of where they are. And so often children um, have a hard time going to sleep because one of my teachers would say it in a way of like, you have to feel in your body before you're able to leave mm. your body, right? Yeah. To go to sleep. So if you're not feeling that, it's really difficult. Mm. Um so I, I do that before bed with all my kids. Mm. And it's just that touch again and that pressure just allows them to like calm down and fall asleep. And so the, that is sometimes used during story time as well, mm. either the weighted blankets or pillows um, or a little joint compression and just squeezing. 
mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. Uh, we had a high school student who his um, his class teacher had done the squeezing down his arms every morning when he said when he greeted him at the door where he'd start with his shoulders and give kind of a just steady pressure squeeze and then work his way down his arms. And there were a couple times in high school where this you could tell that he was kind of out of sorts and he would ask you. He would say, hey, will you, will you do the arm squeeze yeah. thing? <laughs> yeah. And it was, you know, even then there was this recognition that that kind of helped him arrive, mm-hmm. right? And kind of show up Feel in his where body. He is. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, for someone who maybe has young children or is interested in learning more, are there, you know, maybe a few books or resources you could recommend that have been meaningful to you or that you think might be a good starting point for someone who wanted to learn more? Yes, there's so many amazing books out there. Um, and I want, I hope I get the names of them correctly because it's <laughs> been a while. Um, you Are Your Child's First Teacher is, I always say that that's the first one you want to read. Um, that's what I read when I had a baby. And um, it's a really beautiful introduction into Waldorf education, mm-hmm. and but accessible as a parent and how to bring it into the home. Um, and I want to say there's another one, I think, called Over the Rainbow Bridge or yeah, something similar. Right. Over the Rainbow Bridge. Um, that is also another beautiful introduction to Waldorf education kind of breaks down rhythm and um, the four lower senses. I don't like to say lower, the foundational senses. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And to just give parents a little bit more of an understanding of um, their child's development, but also if they are potentially considering a Waldorf setting for their children, then what to expect kind of and what their teachers are um, working with. There's also really beautiful stories in that one. So that one is Beyond the Rainbow Bridge, Bridge. Nurturing Our Children from Birth to Age 7. And that is a book by Barbara Patterson and Pamela Bradley. Yes, those are beautiful. Um, And then for parenting, I always um, recommend any of Kim John Payne's books because it really... um, it's in an alignment with Waldorf and once again, really accessible tools. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a podcast, I believe it's called yes. Simplicity Parenting. Yes. Yeah. Simplicity Parenting is great. Um, it kind of walks you through, you know, early childhood through having teens, which um, Simplicity th- Parenting, I think it's one of those books where you have to go back to all the time yep. of like yep. where you're at mm-hmm. with your child, right? Um, but I think they're also really wonderful. They're, his last one is super helpful. I took, actually, my husband and I took a, like, three-month course around that book with him. Wow. And um, it, I think it's called How to Be at Your Best When Your Children Are at Their Worst. <laughs> <laughs> and it's beautiful because it's about really um, – breaking down our own patterns from childhood, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Which is how we all end up parenting if we're not conscious of it. Wow. And um, so, yeah, I recommend all those books <laughs> for parents because it is not an easy time to be a parent right now and to be raising children in our world. So any tools are greatly appreciated. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for spending this hour with us. I know. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. You're this awesome. This was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> any, any last thoughts? Any, any, anything else lingering? No, I just um, encourage people to really look into Waldorf education and the beauty and the magic and, um, and the real life tools that it offers mm. to children yeah. and, to become successful adults in this world. So amazing. Yeah. Thank Blessings. you so much. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you for having me. Join us next week as we speak with Zach Caputo, Austin Waldorf School alumni and independent filmmaker, about his Waldorf education, his thoughts on Rudolf Steiner, 
and some of the questions that are confronting the Waldorf education movement at this time. Would you like to be a sponsor on Hard Beeswax? Email us at hardbeeswax at gmail.com. That concludes another episode of Hard Beeswax. Thanks for listening. For episodes and more, please visit our website, hardbeeswax.transistor.fm.